Good morning. I have two verses to underscore today, and they come from chapter 4 of Philippians. Will you stand with me, please? I'm not giving you very long. Thank you. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. Well, I'm not going to start with that scripture today. I'm going to lay a foundation here. And it's this, it, the foundation is found in this verse. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Here we see that when we take action by choosing to seek God, by putting him in that place of primacy in our lives, then God's promise follows. The promise is that when God is priority in our lives, then all the priorities that fall underneath that relationship will be taken care of in ways that only God can do. And when God is priority in your life, you are more likely when you pray to pray according to His will, His purposes, and His desires in the things that you are praying for. And when you pray that way, your prayers are answered. You're praying the way God wants you to. And folks, when God is priority, He's more than the doctor on call. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, He's out there somewhere, and most of the time I don't want to be bothered by Him unless I need Him. You know, sometimes that's kind of the way we pray. We don't have much to do or think about God unless we need Him. Uh, God, I've got a problem. If you could, listen, it's the pager, it's the phone call. Could you come and help me with this? When you're done, go back to where you were. We're talking about a relationship here. You don't, you know, I, uh, um, I've been to a number of doctors in my life because we moved around, and I know them, but I really don't have what you would call any kind of relationship with them. They're just some, there's somebody I go to when I have a need for a checkup or I've got something going on, I want the doctor to investigate. We can do that with the, you know, the washer repairman or the mechanic that we use. Um, and sometimes we can, you know, kind of a surface relationship, but most of the time it doesn't go any deeper than that. They're just people we call on when we have a need in our lives. And God wants to be involved in our lives and He wants to meet our needs, but He doesn't just want to show up when we have a need. He wants to be a part of our lives all the time. That's why we need to seek first the kingdom of God, develop that relationship as a primary relationship in our lives. Then when we pray... We'll be able to pray according to His will, and we we can be confident that His that the prayers we pray will be answered. Amen. It needs to be a growing relationship, and we're in the process of that. I hope. 
You know, if we're going to seek God first, then there are a couple of things for sure that are not negotiable. These are the primary, these are the main ways we invest in this primary relationship. The first thing is we spend time in the Word of God. The idea here is that being in the Word, you allow God to speak to you because that's the most consistent way God speaks into our lives is through the truth of Scripture. Um, I don't know about you. I have, you know, I've heard some people testify to this. I heard the audible voice of God. I've never heard the audible voice of God. Sid? I've never, never had that happen. But God's spoken to me many times. You know what I'm saying? God's spoken to me many times in my heart, in my mind. And He does it most consistently through His Word. So I need to spend time here. We all do. If we're going to be able to have a relationship with God and learn to discern His voice, we need to hear Him through Scripture. We talked about that in Sunday school today, how important that is. And it's interesting that when we encounter situations in life, as we're in God's Word, often what He speaks to us about directly applies to that situation or circumstance that we're dealing with at that point in our journey. And then the second thing, in, in developing a relationship with God, this primary relationship, is prayer. And that's why I want to spend some time today because we're in a series on prayer relating to this half million mobilization, the importance of prayer. That's where our, our uh, scripture that Gail read for us today comes in. God is telling us here in this passage in Philippians chapter 4 that rather than allowing anxiety to get a hold of us, ever happened to you? Happens to me. We are instead to bring our prayers and petitions to Him in every situation. Folks, we must make it a practice to persevere in prayer. We bring our prayers and petitions to Him in every situation. Not as a last resort. Ever have a tendency to do that? You know, I'll try everything I can think of to solve this problem, and when nothing works, I'll finally go and ask God about it. That's where He wants us to start, doesn't He? He wants us to start there. Bring those concerns to Him. You know... uh, Some of us, when you talk about don't be anxious, persevere in prayer, we we find ourselves saying, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm not very good at that. Um, But thankfully, God understands and He speaks to our hearts. And hopefully, as, as we grow in that primary relationship, we get better at learning to come to God First of all, something I really appreciate about what Paul says here, not only do we come to him in every situation, we persevere in prayer, it doesn't matter what it is, we bring it to God, but we do it with thanksgiving. I love that he just throws that little thing in there, because I think it's so important. First of all, don't be anxious about anything. If you're able to give thanksgiving when you pray, that helps deal with that anxiousness issue. Here's how I see it. 
And I think that's why Paul included that in this passage. When we include thanksgiving in our prayer, it makes us, in essence, recount our blessings. We need to look back and see how God has worked in our lives previously. Maybe a few minutes ago, maybe last week, maybe last year. But it's a process of counting our blessings. Here's what God has done for me in the past when I brought prayer concerns to Him. So that kind of makes me go, well, if God did that, then God can do this thing that I'm bringing to Him right now. He can. Um, So... And if we do that, if we're able to bring our prayers and petitions to Him, if we're to pray in every situation, persevere in prayer, with thanksgiving, there's a promise there. We will experience a peace that passes understanding. Have you ever watched some of your uh, Christian heroes? I don't mean historically, I mean the ones you live with. You probably have some Christian heroes that you live with. I have some of those in my life. And it's interesting for me to watch them go through the difficult stuff of life and see how they handle it. And to watch when their hearts are guarded by the peace that passes understanding and times when people who don't know Christ and what He can do in our lives would say, how can you... Behave that way in the midst of what you're going through. I'd be out of my mind. And yet that's what God's able to do for us because we come to Him, we persevere in prayer, whatever the situation is, you know, whether it's I can't find the keys to the car and I'm late, or I just got this diagnosis from the doctor doesn't matter. We learn to bring those things to God. And as we do, we think, oh, thank you, God, for this that you did in my life and this that you did in my life. And I just remember how you've come through for me. And so I have confidence to ask you again, and that puts my heart and mind at peace. And... We need to understand what God's peace is because we kind of think as peace is, you know, everything's unruffled, there's no conflict. Um, that's not the case. We can experience God's peace in the midst of conflict, can't we? See, uh, God's peace is a settled confidence that God is in control, even when the waters are ruffled. Uh, The the disciples found that out once, didn't they? They got on the sea. There was a storm. They found out Jesus was in control even in the storm. And that's what God's peace is, is about, is knowing it's a settled confidence that God is in control. And that's a game changer. It's a life changer for us. See, God's peace will empower us. It encourages us. It reminds us. It And it challenges us then to put first things first because we know that when God is first, we can enjoy this peace in our lives. We know He's there with us in the midst of whatever we're going through. Seek God first and He'll be with you in all the other priorities of your life that you place after Him. And you will know His peace, the kind of peace that says God knows what He's doing even in the most difficult circumstance 
I'm facing. I, I've always believed in the power of prayer. From I, I was taught that growing up. It was practiced in our house. We, I've seen prayer answered throughout my life. I've read some outstanding books on prayer that have challenged me. I've been to prayer conferences where I was encouraged and even convicted. And all these things have inspired me to face the challenges in the days that were, uh, the days ahead, the days we're living in right now, by praying bold prayers and learning to persevere in prayer. Have I prayed bold prayers before? Yes. Have I persevered in prayer? Sometimes. Um, but not like I think I should at times. Uh, you know, right now I'm personally dealing with my tendency to, to stress over some things in my life. And God has to remind me that He's in control. Many of you know this because you're part of the church and, and you, you pray for the needs of the church. Our middle daughter has been dealing with a pretty significant health issue. She was diagnosed with colorectal cancer a year and a half a year and a half ago. And when she first started having symptoms, they kind of said, "Well, you know what? We think it's your gallbladder." And and um, I had an issue with my gallbladder about 20 years ago, and really it was a pretty easy fix. And so I thought, "Well, no problem." But when it was discovered that she had cancer, it was a whole new ball game. And she lives 1,200 miles away, which is challenging in and of itself. And from time to time, she'll get really sick, nausea, vomiting, and mom and dad want to be there. And we've debated at times, maybe we should get a plane ticket and send Julie out to be with her. I don't know how many times I've gone to God asking Him to intervene. Recently, we learned that the tumor has caused a stricture in her colon that does not allow things to pass in a normal way. So, at times, things back up and that makes her really sick. She had a bad day this week. All this time, Julie and I have been praying, and many of you have too. And I've struggled with all the human feelings about what does dad do? And we find ourselves in that place of anxiety that we're not supposed to have. And you've been there. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe your circumstance was different, but you've been there. And I can't control the situation, but I can go to God. And I don't know exactly how the answers to our prayers, our prayers, will turn out, but I do trust Him. And I haven't heard an audible voice, but I do hear God reminding me to trust. And I experience that peace that supersedes the circumstances. And folks, I will tell you that when we pray for our daughter, 
we don't just say, God bless Jill. We get pretty specific about what we want him to do. See, Jesus wants us to boldly come to him with details. And the, the, the title of the sermon today is Jericho Miracles, and here's where this comes into play. The, remember the march around the walls of Jericho? That was the first step in God delivering a promise he'd made 400 years earlier. 400 years? 400 years? <laughs> Wait a minute. Is that how long it takes? Well, no, not usually. And we do need to remember, though, that God's timing is often different than ours. In, in my wife's family, they prayed, her, it was her grandmother on her dad's side, they prayed for Grandma Mayhew for 40 years. She came to, to Jesus in a nursing home not long before she passed away. Forty years. The promise uh, that God gave to the Israelites started with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And then it's confirmed several times throughout the Old Testament. And, and while, while the Jericho story in Joshua chapter 6 doesn't explicitly mention the Israelites taking a position of prayer, I have no doubt that the Israelites were praying as they circled the city. They had to do it silently. you remember that? They weren't to say anything as they circled the city. But isn't that what we do? I hope that's what we do when we face the challenges of life. We, we pray. I believe they were praying. Can you imagine their first glimpse or sight of, of the city of Jericho? This, the, the children of Israel had, had been wandering the, the desert for 40 years prior to this, and they're now entering the promised land. They've, they've finally taken that step that they'd failed to take previously. And, and I wonder if they felt small. You remember back in Numbers chapter 12 when Moses sent out the 12 spies, they were supposed to scout out the promised land and come back with an evaluation, and they came back with mixed reviews. And when the votes were counted, there were 10 no's and 2 yeses. 10 said, no, we can't go in. 2 said, yes, we can do it with God's help. Those two were Joshua and Caleb. The other ten said, we can't do this. They're going to squash us like grasshoppers. The people in the cities are huge. And so they turned their backs on the promised land and, and they paid the consequences. That's why they spent 40 years in the desert. And all that generation who refused to go in died in the desert. The only ones who survived it were Joshua and Caleb. The two yes men. Yes in the positive sense as yes men. So now as they approach this walled city, they understand why some of the spies might have said, boy, I don't know if we can do this or not. See, the lower wall outside Jericho was six feet high. Not sure why they had a little shorty wall like that. But the one that actually surrounded the city was 50 feet high. Can you imagine how overwhelming that seemed to stand there and look at the size of that wall? 
And um, so you could imagine them looking at that and, and God's promise seeing a little, at the very least, maybe a little out of reach here. And, and the way God told them to take the city seemed like utter nonsense. Have you ever been up against a situation or circumstance that seemed overwhelming or or impossible? And you feel small, and and when you look at the size of the problem, you feel like a grasshopper? It's too big, it's too painful, you feel powerless, and maybe it might be the first thing that God actually can't do. Let me remind you of the details around what these people were supposed to do to win this battle and watch the walls come tumbling down. And these are God's detailed instructions, by the way. And then the obedience that follows. Joshua chapter 6, and I'm going to be reading verses, well, portions of that chapter, verses 1 through 7a, 10 through 11. 14 through 16 and 20. Can you write that fast? 1 through 7, 10 and 11, 14 through 16 and verse 20. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered, past tense, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in the front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Right. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have the seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance. But Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the, in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout! For the Lord has given you the city. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. (laughs) Wow. So when walls fall, walls fall when we pray, believing and obeying. Can you imagine the first lap around on that first day? It had to feel kind of different. Weird. But with each circle, I think their confidence began to build. By the seventh day, their faith was probably at a pretty high point. And they rose, it says, before dawn. 
And if they started their circle, say at 6 o'clock, and at 3 miles an hour, they would have taken their seventh lap by about 9 a.m. And in keeping with God's instructions, they hadn't said anything all those previous days, or even this day, as they circled around the seven times. They've been circling silently. Then, you know, there are times for silent prayer and there are times for prayer that we vocalize and everybody hears. Aren't you glad God hears both? Then on the seventh day, the priests sounded their horns and simultaneously there was this tremendous shout that followed. They raised a holy roar that must have been heard for miles and the walls came down. After seven days of circling Jericho, God delivered on His 400-year promise. He proved once again that His promises don't have expiration dates. Jericho stands and falls as a, as a testament to that simple truth. See, if you keep believing the promise, God will ultimately deliver on it in His own way and in His own time. So, what is your Jericho? What miracle are you marching around? More than a thousand years later, another miracle takes place near Jericho. This is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called to them, and He said, What do you want me to do for you? And they answered, Lord, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed Him. And Jesus asks us, What do you want me to do for you? You know, the disciples at that point that thought that these two guys were kind of an annoyance and just a human interruption. But Jesus sees a divine appointment. And so he asked the blind men, what do you want me to do for you? He forced them to define their need, to spell it out. He wanted to make sure they knew what they wanted. And Jesus asked us the same question. What do you want me to do for you? We prayed about some of those things earlier in our service today. We were specific about some things we need God to do for us. He wants us to boldly go to Him with details. And too often, and I am guilty of this, we use terms like God please help or God be with or God bless without really telling Him what that means to us or what we want Him to do when we pray those things. And there's nothing wrong with praying those things, but they're just not very specific prayers. Can you spell out the promises? The miracles, the dreams that God has put on your heart, the needs that you need Him to meet. And, and if we can't answer those, that question, then maybe we need our spiritual eyes opened. Maybe that's a reason why prayer times can seem boring to us. 
or that we're falling asleep during our prayers, or if our mind wanders all over the place. If faith is being sure of what we hope for, then being unsure of what we hope for seems like the antithesis of faith. Well-developed faith results in well-defined prayers. And well-defined prayers result in well-lived life and specific answers. So what do you want God to do? Start with the promises like we read earlier. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What we shared with you from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, that we bring our prayers and petitions to God with thanksgiving. And then as we do that, we'll experience the peace of God that passes understanding. Take time to think and pray through some God-glorifying life goals. Write things down. Define your Jericho. So what is your Jericho? Well, it's spelled different ways for us. If you have cancer, it might be spelled healing. If you have a family member who is far from God, it may be spelled salvation. If your marriage is struggling, it might be called reconciliation. If you're short on resources, it might be spelled provision. Jericho might be someone's name. Your children, your grandchildren. A pastor of a huge church in Korea, South Korea, wrote this. God does not answer vague prayers. Get specific as you are circling and praying for your Jericho. You can walk with a holy confidence that the blessing of, of blessings of God and His promises are sure and true. Let's have a definitive answer to the question, what do you want me to do for you? Let's seek God, His kingdom, and His righteousness, and be, then be obedient and give all the glory to God when He comes through in a big way. This should change the way we, we pray for the challenges that are facing us today, personally, as a church, as a nation. Amen? Um, with those, we, we're going to partake in communion at this time. And with those who be serving, will be serving us, come forward. And you go ahead and, and beginning to pass the elements. Thank you. Just a reminder that in the Church of the Nazarene, you need not be a member to partake of communion. And please hold the elements and we will partake together. In Acts chapter 2, it tells us they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. It's around the table that relationships are formed and nurtured. So when we come to the communion table, we need to recognize the relationship with God that is provided and remember the relationships around the table with each other 
that it encourages from the earliest days of the church as they share together in communion. Many of you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor and theologian who was an enemy of the Nazis because he refused to go along with their idea of a church that practiced anti-Semitism. In fact, he became a hunted man who upheld authentic Christian principles. As part of the German underground, he was not safe to worship openly. During such dark times, Bonhoeffer came to know that there was no other community and fellowship like that experienced within the body of Christ. He said, Baptism incorporates us into the unity of the body of Christ, and the Lord's Supper fosters and sustains our fellowship and communion in that body. During the Nazi reign, Bonhoeffer was cut off from other believers and it took a toll on him. Donald Lesur says, Bonhoeffer's painful discovery is instructive for us. Cut off from the nurturing fellowship of other Christians, he felt a deeper hunger for the fellowship that was no longer available to him. Aren't you glad we still have the opportunity? Like a hungry man who knows the taste of bread that we can no longer reach and break from the loaf, he knew the power of fellowship when it was painfully absent. From this experience, Bonhoeffer wrote, God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of a man or woman. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belying their truth. He needs his brother, brother man, as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The importance of the body and the fellowship we enjoy with one another. Bill Hybels put it this way, The Bible says true fellowship has the power to revolutionize lives. Masks masks come off and conversations get deep. Hearts get vulnerable. Lives are shared. Accountability is invited. And tenderness flows. People really do become like brothers and sisters. We not only come to the table being thankful for our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but for the relationships we have in the body of Christ through which our relationship to Christ is lived out. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, But if we live in the light as God does, we share in life with each other. And the blood of His Son Jesus washes away all our sins. From Matthew chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying this, Take ye, this is my body. And as soon as I get this... There we go. The bread represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, beaten, broken, and pierced for us, that we might know forgiveness of sins and experience life that is truly life. Take, eat, and be thankful.
he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. The cup represents the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ spilled out for us to wash away our sins and provide for us the promise of eternal life. Drink this and be thankful. And Jesus, our words are not expressive enough or even adequate to thank you for what you did for us on Calvary's cross. You have said one thing that we can do to honor you and to say thanks is to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Now I know that some throughout history and even today die for their allegiance to Jesus, to you, Lord Jesus. And, and, and I'm grateful that it says a living sacrifice, although we know that there may be a point in time when we will be called upon to offer our very lives. Our lives may be taken from us because of our faith in you. But Lord Jesus, in this place, in this time, where we live, in our community, in our world, may we offer ourselves to you as living sacrifice, as a way to say thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice you made on Calvary's cross. Understanding that a sacrifice, once it was brought and laid on the altar, it was hands off. We're not in control any longer. It's up to you to do with us as you please, as you desire. And may we be willing to be used that way by you, Lord Jesus in gratitude, in thanks, in faithfulness for all that you've done for us. Thank you for meeting with us today. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Go with us now. Lord God, use us in the way that you, you determine and desire. For each of us are different. You put us all in different places. May we be faithful in those places. And we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.